All right, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all here this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3, we'll be in verses 9 through 16 this morning. And just want to remind us of a couple of the uh, structural aspects of Joel uh, so that we wouldn't for, forget uh, the way it's set up because we're, we're coming to the end here and this week and, and next week will be the final sermon for this particular series. Um, remember that it's broken up into two parts uh, in, in Maine. The first part is about lamentation or the grief that we ought to have over our sin that shouldn't just remain grief but should give way to repentance, a true uh, rending of, of our hearts, not just our garments, that we would truly be moved by the gospel to recognize who we are and who God is, that God is holy and we are not and we are in need of a Savior. What a gift it is that he loves us enough to tell us the truth of our condition and not just tell us, not just be long on diagnosis, but be the provider of the cure. Remember, the second half of the book is about hope and hope that we have in God as both Savior and a concept that is a little bit foreign to us in our current culture and makes us slightly uncomfortable, divine warrior. And it, it, he is protective of his people. He loves his people. As we saw last week, he will not tolerate ultimately the commodification or the treatment of his people uh, as uh, some sort of rate of exchange. We saw that he was not happy with the fact that his daughters were being sold so that men could, could go and be with other women or his sons would be sold for a bottle of wine. That, that, that those things were temporary, temporary pleasures God doesn't tolerate that we would see people only in that way. And that has broad application for us as we deal with each other, as we deal with things on the internet, as we deal with all sorts of things that include our embodiedness. We are not to be treated as, as if something to be bartered. We are and contain the image of God, which means we have a reflection of that which is eternal. It means that we are of value to the Lord our God. And that is important for us to remember because so many, in so many ways we are assailed from both within and without that we are of so little value. And so God makes it very clear in the second half of the book of Joel that no, he loves us deeply. And we're going to see more of that this morning as we have a poem about the divine warrior. Also remember that the book of Joel kind of hits from two perspectives, both the earthly perspective and the heavenly perspective. Last week, we saw uh, the judgment in a courtroom type scene, which was more of the heavenly perspective of the judgment that is to come upon the nations. This week, we get in poetic form the earthly perspective. That will actually be uh, uh, occur within the context of war. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And so uh, we, we see that it's both a spiritual reality and a physical reality. And that's important for us because we can at times wax dualistic. We can divide those things and think that which is, a, is spiritual doesn't have much impact on the earthly realm. Well, that's actually not true. No, it has every bit of impact on the earthly realm and how it plays out and how we live. And do remember that what we do in this life matters right? We, we, we've talked about before how uh, there are things that we do here that have eternal implications that will show up purified in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's important for us that, that we would think about how we live. A huge part of you thinking about how you live is how you treat other people. It's one of the greatest litmus tests of all. Do remember what John said to us, how will the world know who you are? By the love you have for one another. Now, why do you think that's the litmus test? 
If you can't even be nice to the people that agree with you, then what are the odds are that you're going to be nice to the people that disagree with you? What are the odds that you will actually do anything for the life of the world that is at war with the divine warrior who is not interested in the things of God of which you represent? So if we can't even do the simplest of loving each other, right? If, if war occurs inside the church, then what hope is there for those outside the church? And so it is important that we recognize that how we live out the gospel embodied and treat the embodiedness of other people is critical to the gospel itself. It's critical for the life of the world. So the key truth that we want to get this morning from uh, the pronouncement of God's judgment of the nations, this being the second part, is that God is our refuge and stronghold in Christ, both in this fallen world and in the, Lord, in the day of the Lord's judgment. That's important. So what that does is keep us grounded, does it not? It keeps us from only seeing salvation as some future-oriented possibility, or that it only has meaning in heaven. No, your salvation has meaning now. It has implications now, right? It, it, the Lord is your stronghold and your refuge in the day of trouble now. We see that whenever we ask the question, when you sin, which way do you run? If you run to the throne of grace, which Hebrews 4 calls us to do to receive what we need in a time of trouble, then you understand the gospel. If you run from God as if you need to hide like Adam and Eve did when they sinned, then you don't understand the gospel. What I'm not saying is that you should, you should boldly go before the throne of grace arrogantly as if your sin doesn't matter. It does. You should come humbly seeking to have the grace of the gospel applied to you once again so that the world can't whisper low, the devil can't whisper low, your inner monologue can't whisper low that you don't matter. God doesn't want you caught up in the commodification of shame and guilt. He doesn't want you being a product of sin or the rate of exchange of sin or the consequence. He wants you to remember always who you are and whose you are. And so as we step into this, again, let's remember... And this is language that we may not be entirely comfortable with, but if God is not for us, if God is not the divine warrior, if justice is not real and tangible, then what does it matter that we are embodied? So key to understanding our value is that God fights for us, that God actually does care about justice in this world, as we saw from last week. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great." 
multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel." Now, as we, we step into this, let's remember, again, this is from the earthly perspective. He's, he's calling, and this is an act of his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence. He's calling the nations to war, right? It's no longer just a courtroom scene. There's a physical cost to this. There will be a physical and spiritual reckoning. And so he's saying, if you want, if you want to fight me, if what you want is war, then I will give you war. Now you may say, well, that, that doesn't seem fair. Well, hang on a second. Let's not forget what he said after the Spirit would be poured out, right? Is he's the, the fourth telling of Pentecost in chapter 2. What did he say that any person from any nation could do? That they could call on the name of the Lord and what? And they would be saved. Let's also not forget that this language is reserved for the day of judgment, which is the last day of all, when there is no more grace to be given, when the Lord's patience has reached its finitude, when it's finally come to, to, to reckoning. And I love the way that Christ, before this day ever comes, points and says, the harvest is plentiful. This different language than what we see here when it talks about the wine press and the evil of man filling up the wine press, which is language that shows up in Revelation 14. But long before this day, Christ identifies and says, the harvest is plentiful, but what is the problem? Is the problem judgment? No. What's the problem? The workers are far too few. And so while the sun is up, while the day is yet not over, while the day of judgment has not yet come, what, what must we, the people of God, do? We must work. And part of the work is to make sure that people know the fullness of the story. So we would never, like it would be bad evangelism for you to say, hey, let's begin with Joel 3, 9 through 16. I have a poem for you. No, no, you wouldn't start there. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we're not starting here. This has been part of a journey uh, larger than even the book of Joel, but that's not the place you would start. You would have to back up and recognize where does judgment begin first, and I think this is important, in the house of the Lord, among his own people. Right? He's already dealt with that as he's called his people to repentance, as he's called them to rend their hearts, not their garments. And he's made it very clear that everyone who calls on his name can be saved. Everyone. That's not unique to a tongue, tribe, or nation. And so, so it's critical that we not start with the judgment of God, but instead we start with the grace and the mercy of the Lord, but not fail to point to a reckoning that is coming. There is a gravity and a seriousness to the gospel that we can't, we can't exclude. Remember in Joel, it says that we need to make sure that our children know that God is both loving and just in his judgment. And if you are concerned about the judgment of the Lord, well, I would suspect you to be the most evangelistic person in the room. I would expect that you would be sharing the grace and mercy and love of God with everybody you see. 
Because if you say you're concerned with it and you're not doing that, then either you don't believe God is real or you're really not that concerned with it now, are you? And so it's critical that we be at work while the sun is up, while the day is yet dawned for judgment and in full for the nations. It is a serious thing that will come. Notice what he tells them. He says, get ready for war. Bring everybody that you can if you want to be at war with me. Beat your plowshares into swords. Again, that's the contra, the vision of shalom. What is the vision of shalom or, or, or peace in the fullest sense say to do with swords? No, you go the other way. You beat them into instruments for the cultivation of the earth for the glory of God. But this... This is, is, is the, the people of the nations who have said, we, we don't want any God or law over us. It would be uh, helpful for us for us to pause here and go and read Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 needs to be read in context of Psalm 1. Now, now Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the introductions to the book of Psalms. And, and what's important is that the first Psalm tells us what it means to be blessed. And what it means to be truly blessed is actually to... Um, be in the presence of the Lord and be able to enjoy him. And so in Psalm 1, what it tells us that we need to do to do that is obey him, essentially. That, that the law that he has given is so that we can relate to him, not be kept from him, and relate to one another in a way that evidences his heart, his love for those who bear his image. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is basically the people who say, no, thank you. No, thank you. So listen to what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So essentially they're saying, let us come out from under the tyranny of the Lord. So they view the law of God, the presence of God, and his anointed, which is his king, which we know to be Jesus. They view that as bad. They view that as limiting their freedom and their, their ability and desire to do exactly what they want to do. So they want to come out from what they call tyranny, what we would call mercy and grace, or should. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So essentially, God says, well, that's cute. That you think you can come out from under uh, my love for you. That it's that easy that you can just burst the bonds of my care my tenderness, my pursuit of you, my care for you, my provision for, for you, that you could just wander off and think that's okay. And it's not that he's mocking them in a way that, that we view mocking as, as a very negative thing. No, in, in essence, what he's trying to show them is the height of their folly. How foolish it is that they would try to go their own way. We've all done it, Right? Here's a small version that's not necessarily related to God. Think about it. Every one of us have done this. I just want to figure it out for myself. No child has ever said something like that. As if you can be a completely clean slate and you get to reinvent something from nothing. There is nothing that you can do or I can do that you are actually doing 
for yourself. You are always standing on the shoulders of those who've come before you and provided some measure of knowledge and or tools by which you do that. Right? If you want to impress me, uh, from the metals of the earth using your own bare hands, create your own MacBook and send me an email. <laughs> Uh, but, but that's not how we do it, right? So most of what we call figuring things out for ourselves is actually getting out from someone we think is tyrannizing us with their knowledge, information, and love. What tyranny. And so we understand this, actually. How often do we say to the Lord, no, 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 I want to decide what I am and what I am not. I want to decide what is best and right for me to do with my own body and my own time according to my own desire. We all do it, by the way. You may be thinking of someone else. You shouldn't. You should think only of you. You've done it. So, turning back to the text, verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But who's he talking to? He's talking to Jesus. Jesus is the one that he will make his son. And this dashing of the nations with a rod of iron, please don't miss this was the cross. He broke. He broke the control of sin and death through his own death and resurrection. That was a rod of iron that could not be bent. It could not be changed. It could not be thwarted. And amen. Further on, it says in Revelation 19 that there's a sword that comes out of his mouth. What is that sword, by the way? How does he actually pierce the bone and marrow of every tongue, tribe, and nation? With his word. Notice the upside-down nature. See, we, we struggle to read this because we read it in the warlikeness of our own humanity. We read it through eyes unredeemed by the Spirit at times. We read it as words that are not paradoxical and truly upside down as they are. And so when you read those words, what you should see is the love of God. That he would break the nations not using their means. He would be so utterly subversive and subtle and caring and tender in his breaking of the nations. In his breaking of those who uh, declare him not God. How gentle has he been with you in your disobedience? In fact, what's sad about this is we doubt the existence of God because the guillotine doesn't fall as fast and as hard as we think it ought. What a crazy notion. How crazy are we that we're like, well, if God didn't give me cancer for doing, lying about this thing over here, well, then he must not exist. But if God had given you cancer for some lie you told, what would you also say of him? He's cruel and unjust. It's not fair. There's no parody there. That's not one-to-one at all. And yet, it is his long-suffering and his mercy and his patience on display as the day of judgment has not yet come in full. 
There have been judgments throughout history to point us, to try to orient us, to try to get us to think things through. And are we listening? Do we have the eyes to see? Are we paying attention at all? And so here, he's going to break and dash them in pieces first through the cross and through his word. And their own, their own lives will be judgment upon themselves. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, Babylon is destroyed not by Christ. Who destroys Babylon? The beast does. The ones that she served so faithfully, interesting term, so clearly she served them and they feasted upon her. And that's just what evil does. It is self-consumptive. It is not interested in building a kingdom. It is interested in destroying the glory of God, which can only be done if all image bearers are gone. And everything that bears the imprimatur of God is burned to ash. Fortunately, they don't have that capability. And so, turning back to the text, picking it up in verse 10, he says, Now therefore, O kings... Now listen at this. How gracious is this? It's not past tense. The breaking with the rod, the thing that's coming is not yet past tense. It is a fixed, sure reality. He says, now therefore, based on everything you've just heard, O kings, be wise. What's he saying there? Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Don't foolishly kick against the goads. He goes on, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Recognize who he is as holy and who you are as his sons and daughters created in his image. How gracious is our God that he would warn. He goes on, kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 is critical to our understanding of this poem here in Joel. In that the, the, the kings have been warned. They're being warned. Right? You have been warned. The Lord is gracious to warn us and not immediately prosecute every riven sin that we commit. He is gracious to give us the opportunity to come to him boldly in the repentance and grace that he has granted to us in Christ so that our hearts would be rent, not our garments, not some external display. He doesn't need any of the blood of bulls and goats. His longing is for a broken and a contrite heart. You may say, well, how do I get there? Well, we had a seminar on fasting last week that's available to you online. This is how seriously we should take this. Have you ever committed a sin you just didn't feel all that bad about? Me too. All the time. In fact, sometimes, my wife can attest to this, and so can some of my friends, and so can many of my enemies. I am perfectly capable of self-justifying the worst of behaviors and the darkest of the heart that it can produce. The greatest of hatred, the, the, the most vile violence that man can do, I am capable of. You may say, well, maybe we should get a nicer pastor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying. Um, I, I don't. I haven't I done anything since I've been here, so not in that regard. 
Uh, and so, so it's important that we recognize that, that it's not always going to be feelings-based. You're not always going to be there, but the true knowledge of the truth and true faith in the truth is to cry out to the Lord and say, Grant me a rent heart, O Lord. Grant me the sensation of a redeemed and a repentant heart. I have grown so cold. How gracious is God that in Romans 8 it says, Even when you don't know what to cry out, the Holy Spirit groans on your behalf. It's how good he is that everything is covered and granted and offered. The question is, will you join the banquet? Will you feast from the table of his goodness available to you inexhaustibly every single day of your life? Never is it taken away. Never do the servants come out and take these things away from the table for you. Because you're eternal beings now if you're in Christ Jesus. And so we don't have to fear the day of judgment. We don't have to fear this war that is to come for ourselves, yet we ought fear it for those who don't know Christ as Savior. We ought to be concerned for those who don't yet know. Remember last week, one of the things we were challenged by is we ought to have a genuine affection for and pray for even the oppressor. We see that all throughout Scripture, right? Saul becomes Paul, one of the greatest oppressors the church has ever seen. Peter, who denies Christ, which is an act of oppression, is forgiven for his sins. Even those who've committed violent acts, the Roman centurion, Nebuchadnezzar, we could name many who were oppressors, who have become those whom the Lord loves and calls his own. And so it's important that we not forget that. That we not do more imprecatory, if you know what imprecatory prayers are, that's where you pray for someone's death and destruction, or at least their judgment on some level. That's not beyond the pale, by the way. And several of you have asked me, how do you pray the imprecatory psalms? Well, me personally, one of the ways I pray them is to, to have it be about sin and death, truly where the rod of iron has broken things, and the hold that sin has over us. We ought to pray imprecatory prayers about that, but not those who bear his image, even those who are used as instruments. Remember Ephesians 6. We don't battle flesh and blood. We battle principalities and powers, stuff bigger than that. But it has flesh and blood implications. Unfortunately, it gets played out on that stage. And notice that as these folks are called to the valley of judgment, it's the Lord in his sovereignty who bids them come. They choose not when the war will come. In fact, if they're having to beat their plowshares into swords, that means they're not ready. They arrogantly weren't prepared for this. But they wanted blood. And so he says, you'll have it. And so there will come a time when the the sickle will be put in because the harvest of their evil will be ripe. And and, and it will be the Lord who treads the winepress in full and the vats will overflow. With their blood. In fact, in Revelation, it says that it'll be as high as a stadia on a horse. It'll be up to the bridal garment of the horse itself. And so, uh, so that, that, that's a terrible image, right? But how much more of, of the terrible images of those who traffic in the flesh of God's people, of those who traffic in those who bear his image and treat flesh as if it were meaningless, There will be a reckoning. 
And it will be real. And it will be costly. And we need to be at work while the sun is still yet up, calling for people to come into the kingdom, calling for even the oppressor to repent and have their heart rent instead of just their garments or their flesh. And notice that as this goes along, this fearsome thing, that the Lord is going to roar from Zion, which is where he dwells, and the earth will quake. So there will be a physical creation warning. The bells will toll, as it were, so we would not be caught unaware, right? That we would be ready, though they are not ready. That we would call for them to be ready, not for war, but redemption. That we would long for them to see him come as redeeming father and not just judge. Notice what he says in verse 18. And in that day, oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead to Matt's sermon. Sorry, Matthew. I'll go back to my own sermon. Uh, Verse 16. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So we don't need to be afraid for the day of judgment that's coming. We, we, We don't. We don't need to be afraid between the now and the not yet. Christians have survived some pretty horrific circumstances worldwide. There's even crazy stuff going on now all over the world. The church is persecuted in many places. And we, the church in America, uh, are probably much like uh, the church in the Old Testament that was told you are like the cows of Bashan, which is not a compliment, by the way. It means you're fat and happy and you're grazing on things that are not the feast. And that you, the church in America, are more concerned with your comfort You're more concerned with safety and security than you are the reckoning that's coming for those who don't know me yet. See, we have been given a great gift. We're not battling in full persecution much as of yet. We still have uh, religious freedom. I have a friend who's in Canada, and they're probably about 15 or 20 years ahead of us in many respects. They're, they're enduring a lot more on the political side as far as loss of religious freedom, particularly at the university level. Um, it's, it's the, the, the church level is a little less, uh, but, but has, has kind of bumped and come and gone a bit, and they've had to make some changes. The church in Canada is relatively small, but it is a faithful remnant. And so, so it's important that we recognize that we have all of this time, as of yet, to be at work, because the harvest is plentiful. The question is, who's at work in the harvest? Now, let me just say, knowing 80% of the room at least is introverts, you die inside every time I bring up evangelism because it sounds like a thing for extroverts. But what what did John tell us? What's the greatest evangelism you will ever do? How you love one another. So why don't you start where you are instead of getting crazy and worrying about what's going on in Ghana necessarily, although you, somebody probably should be concerned about what's going on in Ghana. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you love your family? Why don't you start with your family? Why don't you take a long look at your marriage and ask, is this a sacred canopy? Is, is this something that would display to my neighbors and my family members the, the glory of God? And if not... Get to work on it. 
You, you have all of the heavenly blessings available to you. You have all that the church has to offer to help you navigate that. Love your children well. That's easy, right? Easier than that marriage thing. No, probably not. And it's important that you love your children well, that the next generation would be reared knowing that the, the, the Lord loves them and sees a picture of that from you that is salient and tangible and beautiful. And then, if you've got time left over from those two things, go crazy. Get out there and cause trouble, right? Get you a bullhorn. No, I'm kidding. I, I just, no, I'm, don't get a bullhorn. Don't do any of that. But then be concerned about family members and neighbors. Radiate out, right, from, from where you are. Some of us are in positions to radiate out further because of the, what the Lord has done sovereignly in our spheres of influence, Think about where you work. Think about where you, where you engage other people. Take heart. The Lord doesn't want you responsible more than, for more than what he's given to you. Too often we have this over-realized sense of what evangelism is. We, we, we're haunted by this kind of notching of the post type mentality. No, not at all. Be a Christian where you are. That will be evangelism. Remember, you're witnessing whether you like it or not. The question is, are you proactive in what's being witnessed? If your marriage isn't healthy, if your relationship with your children's not healthy, you've got to start there. That is the firm foundation. Without that, you have very little to say to the world. And so, the Lord says that he is our refuge and stronghold. That means both in this world and in the day of judgment to come. Take heart. So listen to what O. Palmer Robertson says, Old Testament scholar. He says, A summons to judgment should terrify the unbeliever. They will be brought to account for all the wrong that they have done. But for the believer in Christ, the valley of God's judicial decision has been transformed into a door of hope. The one who trusts the Lord for their salvation already stands acquitted of their crimes and awaits expectantly his entrance into glory. You need to understand if you're in Christ, judgment in the eternal sense has already fallen on Jesus and been applied to you. So therefore, you may say, but yeah, I'm going to be judged. You will. You're going to be judged for what you then did with that salvation and the good news is, according to 1 Corinthians 3, you'll be saved from that fire. The hay wooden stubble, yes, it's got to be burned up. It's bad building materials, as it turns out. But that which is gold, silver, and other precious metals, that will beautify the bride. Better you be proactive about doing the things that have eternal value, which, which is of, of all the things that deal with trying to love people well, which is a messy thing. It's not always going to look like what you thought. Sometimes it'll just be persevering in the face of difficulty in relationships. Sometimes it's, it's staying to the course, even when one won't speak to you for some period of time. Sometimes it's a precious metal to just say you're sorry because you messed up. And so we are the people who look to the door of hope in the Valley of Decision. But I think it's important that we ask, who are you most afraid for in the day of the Lord's judgment? As you hear about judgment, are you more afraid for you? 
Well, if you're afraid for you, then you're lacking in assurance and confidence in your pardon in Christ, and you need to wrestle with that. That's a genuine place to be. I have asked, am I, am I even saved, Lord? To have those kind of thoughts and to think those things and to have that kind of a reaction. Can I even be numbered among your children, O oh Lord? And that wasn't 10 years ago, by the way. That was within this last year. At some point, I've had that thought, as have you. And that's why we need the assurance of pardon. That's why we need to gather together weekly to practice for what's coming. That's what this is. Yes, it pales in comparison. Yes, you will sing better. You will actually sing in the new heavens and new earth, some of you. Your tongues will be unleashed. It's going to be glorious. I hope I'm standing next to you. And, and time won't be a factor. None of us are going to have to go to the bathroom. What a great thing. We'll pay attention even. It's going to be awesome. But we get to practice between now and then. So practice well. Practice honestly. Practice boldly because of who your Savior is. But don't be concerned for you in judgment. So you should be concerned for someone you know that doesn't know the Lord as their refuge and stronghold. You should be concerned for those who are chasing after lovers less wild than God is. You should be concerned for those who are not applying the gospel, who think that you, you, salvation is just your declaration, which it is not, by the way. You saying you're a Christian is actually meaningless without the abiding in Christ. It is meaningless without your love for those around you. And you need to understand that. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you one. It's what you get accused of by the world and everybody else and what God declares. And it's not to unseat your assurance, but instead to place it in the right place. And so we should be concerned for those who don't know, who don't display that. And so part of loving them well is to make sure they know this story in full. The majority of the times that I've had the opportunity to sit down with people that don't believe, um, which I, I, I had a lot more of those opportunities as a physical therapist than a pastor, but so often what they were mad at and pushing against wasn't even biblical. And so you have this fantastic opportunity to not necessarily try to call them to a decision, but at least help clear up some ways in which they, they think that, that God is something other than what the Bible declares him to be. For instance, you often hear this. Well, the God of the Old Testament is what? Cruel, judgy. He likes killing people. Well, we did a sermon series on the grace of God just in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. We, we could have gone, that series could have gone on for years. I hope that you have seen again and again and again how gracious our God is, even in the book of Joel. All who, all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved, will be saved, as they do so in sincerity. So the Lord is gracious. So for, to say that the Lord in the Old Testament is different than the Lord in the New Testament is actually bad biblical theology. It's unbiblical. To deny justice as a key component of the person and work of God is foolish, especially in a world that keeps crying out for justice in a variety of ways. I think it's one of the ways in which the Lord keeps before us the church the genuine desire of the world for a Savior. 
And we keep missing it because we keep trying to tell them, no, no, no. No, that doesn't matter. It was your fault. You wore that outfit. It was your fault. You went to that place. It was your fault. You shouldn't have said those things or made those offers. No, justice is something we should all be very, very concerned about and be able to join in and participate in in the fullness of the gospel and not leave it just as justice for this life, but justice for all of eternity. And so Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 16 teaches us that God is our refuge and stronghold in Christ in both this fallen world and in the day of the Lord's judgment. It makes it very clear that we need not fear the world, but we need to be in awe of our God and his goodness and his mercy and his grace. We need to be in awe of the radicalness of reconciliation that he's offering in Christ and participate radically in that reconciliation. If you would, uh, usually I, I close with a prayer, and we are, but it's going to be the words of John Calvin. So if you would stand, we're just going to say this one together. And this is a good prayer for you to take and further meditate on later. <coughs> um, it should be up on the screen. So if you would, join me in reading this, praying this. And you may say, why would we pray the words of another man? Well, given that all words come from someone else, it's what we do all the time. And given that the Spirit cries out on our behalf, it's okay to sometimes say what someone else said, but in the present tense, with the affection and, and authenticity that is required of the things of the gospel and worship. So if you would join me in reading this, grant, Almighty God, that as we are assailed on every side by enemies, and as not only the wicked according to the flesh are incensed against us, but Satan also musters his forces and contrives in various ways to ruin us. O grant that we being furnished with the courage thy spirit bestows may fight to the end under thy guidance and never be wearied under any evils. And may we at the same time be humbled under thy mighty hand when it pleases thee to afflict us and so sustain all our troubles that with a courageous mind we may strive for that victory which thou promises to us and that having completed all our struggles we may at length attain that blessed rest which is reserved for us in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.